I think that most of you know that our chapel today is dealing with the area of moral purity and with our sexuality. And I want you to know that I don't come here as an expert. I'm not even sure what a godly woman who was an expert in this area would even, what that would be, what she would be like. But I come to you as one who, like yourself, is a woman that God created with sexuality. And I had, when I came in and found out Mike was going to record for us, I encouraged him that he might like to turn that job over to somebody else today. So he very quickly agreed to do that. Now I'm here because, to talk to you about this, as a fellow sister and one who's a struggler along the way in this whole area, as one who has sat in sort of a counseling role, I guess, at times, to spend literally hours and hours and hours over 10 or 15 years with both married and single women of all different ages who have wept over the things that they have done in their lives, the mistakes that they have made in regard to their sexual behavior and their sexuality, and to have had deep regrets in those areas. And I'm also here as somebody who really cares a great deal about you. Some of you I don't know all that well personally, but I have a real deep concern. I've spent some time in my office here on the campus weeping with some girls about mistakes that they've made in these areas. I had the opportunity to be in New Orleans today for a conference. And basically the reason I'm here instead of New Orleans is because I didn't want somebody else to come. And to somebody who was a guest speaker that maybe you didn't even know very well, but I felt like that if we were going to talk about these kinds of subjects today, that it was my responsibility to be here with you. I would much prefer if we were going to talk about these things that we could be either one-on-one or in groups of four or five, and I could have you over to my home and we could sit on the floor in our jeans and just talk back and forth. I don't think that a lecture kind of situation in a gym is the way to talk about these things. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is to see how creative you can be in your mental concentration. And that is to pretend that you're not in a gym, and I'm not going to try to lecture and, you know, that kind of thing. But I'm just going to try to have as much as possible a private conversation with you and see how much you can tune out the gym and tune out your neighbors around you and just let me talk to you a little bit real personally. And I'm going to ask you, too, I know sometimes I look around in chapel and I notice that there are people who carry on personal conversations with each other during the whole chapel time, which grieves me greatly for the speakers that we have and for what they go away thinking about our school when we do that. But I'm going to ask you not to do that. I really need you not to today, but to really tune in with me and I'll do my best not to bore you. Have you ever thought about the fact that God has given us many different things that have the potential either for great good and great pleasure or else to be used for something that can be incredibly destructive? There are lots of things around like that. One real good example would be fire and heat. Have you ever been in a situation where you just were so cold you felt like you'd never ever be warm again? And the incredible pleasure of getting near the heat or sitting in front of a fire and being able to warm up. 
the year that I lived in, um, in Israel and studied there, um, we lived in these dormitories. There were these old stone buildings that were 130 years old. And the week that it snowed in Jerusalem, and there was snow on the ground for about four, four or five days, was the week that um, they had this incredibly old, antiquated kind of heating system where there was a boiler system with radiators in our rooms, and that was how we got the heat. Well, it was that week that the boilers picked to blow up and to totally not function. So we lived and slept in the dorm for about four days with no heat at all. Um, I think the only reason we were able to sleep there was because most of us had electric blankets they had told us to bring with us, and there was hot water in the showers. Um, but it was wonderful after getting dressed in the morning, standing on a concrete floor and with those cold stone rooms, to be able to go over and find a room where there was some heat and to be able to warm up. The other side of that, that's, that's the positive and pleasurable side. The other side is that... Um, I saw some of that more personally last summer when um, about two months after my father had died and my stepmother was going through a real hard time dealing with the loss of my dad. She was trying to take care of the yard at home by herself and trying to rake up leaves and clean up the yard and she used some gasoline to try to set some leaves on fire and she managed to set both of her legs on fire at the same time. And uh, when they put her in the hospital, she told me not to make the trip back there because she was in intensive care and they would have, would have only let me in for like a few minutes at a time anyway. And so I called her like every day, probably for two or three weeks, and I could hear the pain over the telephone. It was like I would get off the phone and weep because of what I could just hear in her voice that she was going through. Again, but there are lots of different things like that. Can't you think of that? God's given us appetites and he's given us food to satisfy that. And there are lots of different ways that that can get out of control. It can be either really positive or very destructive. Um, I think our sexuality is another thing that God has given us that can be an incredibly wonderful and positive and pleasurable kind of thing in our lives. But it has the capacity when it's abused to bring great, great destruction in our lives. The thing that I want you, if you've never really seriously thought about this before, the first thing I would want you to think about is, is who designed sex in the first place? I mean, who is um, the artist who designed the male and the female body and who designed the whole idea of sexuality? See, sometimes I think we think so much in terms of sexual sin and what's wrong about sex or how we handle it in the wrong way that we begin to lump it all together. And we begin to say that anything that's even remotely related to sexual feelings, if I, you know, if I feel in some way sexual or I get pleasure from that, well, that must be sinful because it's wrong to feel that, maybe unless you're married kind of thing. And the thing I want you to think about is that God is the one who designed that, and he designed it for good. Let me read you a statement. Think about this. It's real important. I think very few people are able to make this distinction. Think about it for just a minute. Even when there is sin and lack of control in sexual areas, learn to separate your sexuality and your God-given sexual desires from the sin. Does that make sense? Even when there's lust, even when there's fornication, immorality, even when there's the sinful practice of masturbation, the basic desire which God placed in you is good. Right? It can be abused in lots of different ways. And it can bend up in a sinful result. But the desires that even started those things that led you into a sinful pattern if you made the wrong choices, the basic desire that was put there in the first place is good. And it's God-given. And he gave it for pleasure and for joy.
wanted to read you I've, one of the books I've been looking at um, in regard to all this is a book by John White called Eros Defiled, The Christian and Sexual Sin. Let me just read you a sentence that he says about that in here. The physical pleasures of sex are God-given. Your body has the capacity to be deliciously stimulated because God made it so. Pleasure, as C.S. Lewis once pointed out, is God's invention, not the devil's. And sometimes we we get that all confused and we mix it up. I want us to look at, um, I think, four or five different areas where we can go astray with this whole thing. Where we can take what God's given us for good and for positive and for pleasure. And how we can turn it into something that becomes very destructive in our lives. And I want to just um, go over some of these things. The first one I want to start with, um, which is the place where a lot of this starts anyway, is the thought life. Okay? The thought life. There are some people, some couples, who never commit actual physical sexual sin. But they indulge their sexual thoughts. And scripture teaches us that that's sinful too, right? That Matthew, I believe it's 529, says that if you commit adultery with someone in your heart, you've still sinned, even though you didn't go through with the physical act. What about your thought life? A lot, a lot of people not only indulge their lustful thoughts, but they feed that. And there's a place for every one of us to examine what are the things that we're doing that feed the things, the, the desires that are in us and cause us to struggle in wrongful ways. For some of you, for some of us, it's going to be the music that we listen to. For some people, it's the movies they watch, the television that they watch. For some people, it's the books and the magazines that they read. I mean, if you, if you give yourself for periods of time to those things which people who are not Christians have written and have prepared specifically for the purpose of arousing people sexually and taking them into sexual immorality and some of those things that we give ourselves to, I mean, that's exactly what they're designed for. If you give yourself and your mind to that and then later you struggle... I mean, do you wonder why? I mean, it's a very natural thing that if you're going to give your mind to those kinds of things that were directly designed to create that kind of a struggle, of course you're going to struggle afterwards. Do any of you read the comic strip in the newspaper, Dunesbury? Gary Trudeau does a lot of political satire and that kind of thing. And uh, in the last couple of weeks, he's been doing this thing where he's taken, like, one of the comics. He, I think he just really hates Ronald Reagan. He doesn't think very highly of him at all. <clears throat> but he's done this thing in the last couple of weeks where he's taken, like, one of the comic strip characters and imagined as though you could reduce him down to, like, the size of somebody about this small. And, and the guy who's taken three or four people with him on this little expedition through President Reagan's mind. And so the comic strip, for several days at a time, had, it's kind of like you see these, the muscles attached in part of the skull and the organisms floating through the air, and this guy who's with his little tiny backpack, and he's, you know, tracking through Reagan's mind. And um, the big thing the other day was that there was an explosion, and I think it even killed some of the people in the party that he had brought along because cause Reagan was trying to hold on to two thoughts at one time. <clears throat> okay, but take that kind of a situation... And imagine that if we could shrink somebody down real tiny who would just fit right inside your brain and who would take his little tiny backpack and walk around in your mind and, and would, what kinds of thoughts would he find there? 
you know. But in terms of the kinds of things that you dwell on, that you give yourself to, and that you spend time thinking about, what kinds of things, if you could walk around in there and be able to see all the things that you think about, what would he find? James 1.5 says, When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And the beginning of all of it is lust, which is a strong desire. And the, the beginning desire is okay because God created all of us with that. But it's when it begins to get out of control and when we don't have self-control. And then we all know Philippians 4.8 that talks about letting our mind dwell on certain things. And what are those kinds of things? The things that are true, that are honorable, that are right, pure, lovely, good reputation. You know, and, and we all, you know, we get this pious look on our faces and we read that verse or a lot of us have probably memorized it at different points. But you know what the truth of the matter is that every single one of us in this room at points spends a lot of time dwelling on things that in no way could pass that test. Right? It's true. We all do. The thought life is the first place to start in terms of asking the Lord to do some self-examination in our lives. The next place I'd like for us to talk about <coughs> has to do with our dress and how we present ourselves to other people in terms of how we dress. Have you noticed <coughs> that women tell a lot about themselves by the way that they dress? Have you observed that? That you can tell about some women that... Um, that they're executives in the corporate world and that they're um, in competition with men every day and they're looking for power and prestige and wealth and you can tell it in the way that they dress. For the woman who's the trendsetter and fashion is more important to her than anything else, you can tell that about her by the way that she dresses. For the woman who's caught up with money and is real intent on the amount of money that she has and being able to display that to other people. You can tell that in the way that she dresses. For the woman who is not real comfortable with her sexuality and being the woman that God created her to be, and she doesn't really want to be feminine because she's much more comfortable being a, a neuter kind of person. You can tell that in the way that she dresses. It's always been interesting to me that there's a verse in Proverbs that says, that refers to um, a woman there and it says she was dressed like a harlot. And I thought, how interesting that you can tell a whole lot about this woman's character and who she is by the way that she's dressed. Her goals and her intentions are obvious. Now, <clears throat> obviously we don't have harlots walking around here on our campus. And, uh, but if you've been down Hollywood Boulevard or some other parts of our um, wonderful city of Los Angeles, you've probably seen prostitutes. And you know exactly what Proverbs is talking about because you can tell from the way that those women are dressed exactly what their goals and their intentions are. But the truth of the matter is that those of us on a Christian college campus tell a lot about ourselves by how we dress too. You know, And there are lots of fashions that are out there right now that are, they're designed by people who are not Christians, right? Who have no remote interest in modesty. You know, and it's like there are times when, and I don't think that Christians should, um, you know, I mean, I don't think we should all wear black skirts down to the floor and try to um, 
I don't think there's anything virtuous or holy about trying to be unattractive, you know. But somewhere there's a proper kind of balance. <clears throat> and, I, and it concerns me because girls that I see walking around with certain kinds of the, the modern fashion that are incredibly immodest. And, and I feel like there are times that they kind of think nobody's going to notice, you know, nobody's going to realize what this is all about. And I feel really sad when you do that because it's like you're displaying to the whole world the impure kinds of things that are in your heart. Or either that or your immaturity and your insecurity in some of those situations. You know, and the sad thing too is that um, <clears throat> I think most of us, when we have dressed in those kinds of ways, probably more than anything else, it's to get attention that we can't get any other way. And guys, because of how God created them and that they're very vi visual creatures, they respond to that and they give us the attention that we want when we dress that way. But you know what? We don't get their respect. And I think there are a lot of guys around that really love the Lord and are really desiring to move toward Him and to love Him with all their hearts. And they're still struggling with some old desires, maybe from their past. And so when we dress that way, yeah, we get their attention. And maybe we enjoy that for the moment. But I think when they go away and they spend time quietly that night alone with the Lord and examine their own hearts, I think they're ashamed of what their response was. And then when they're ashamed and they're confessing their sin before the Lord, how do, they, how do you think they feel about you as the person who put that stumbling block there? And then it, suddenly the attention that we wanted that made us feel good for a little while suddenly turns into something else, if we could really see that. And it doesn't feel quite so good. You know, I've learned um, <clears throat> this lesson a real hard way. I don't think I've shared this with you before. Um, when I was probably about the age of most of you here in the room, mini skirts, very, very short, were quite the rage. And I think that I began to wear them probably out of a sense of my own insecurity that I think I had not felt very attractive to guys. And all of a sudden it became a way that I was getting some attention that I'd never had before. And I became very callous to whether or not that was a problem to anybody else. I don't think that I even realized that it was, maybe. And there was a guy in my church, a different church than the one I'm in right now, a guy in my church who had, he was a real flirt. And he had kind of kidded me, jokingly, two or three times about the length of my skirt. He didn't say it seriously. He was always joking. And I kind of took it in that way. <clears throat> and then one night, there were about eight of us who went over to somebody's apartment. And we were going to have communion together and have kind of our own little worship service. It was some sort of a special time, like maybe Good Friday or something like that. And the guy who was leading the group brought his guitar, and we sang some songs. And it was just the most prayerful, meditative kind of time. And then um, the guy put a lot of emphasis in terms of the Lord's Supper on confession of sin, probably, if anything, in terms of the kind of balance between the joy of that kind of worship and the time for confession of sin. You need to have both. And he probably almost went too far in the direction of confession of sin. But he had to spend some time quietly in our own hearts, just talking with the Lord and confessing any kind of sin that we needed to get straightened out. And then he said, there are only eight of us here, and I think it would be good that before we um, partake of communion, that if there's anything in anybody's heart here that hinders a relationship with somebody else in the group, 
that there's been anything in a relationship here in the group that stands between you and your ability to be able to worship the Lord with a pure heart. Maybe you need to confess that to that person. And there were a couple of guys in the group that one of them confessed something to the other one, which again I think probably was not a right thing for public confession, but they did it and they sort of got that resolved. <clears throat> and then there was another little moment of silence and he says, is there anybody else? And this guy, who was the real flirtatious guy who had kidded me with all the seriousness in the world, said, he said, yeah, I think that before I can partake of communion and really have a clear conscience and a pure heart, that I need to confess to Betty a problem that I've had with lust. And he never said anything about the way that I dressed. But my mind went immediately to my skirts and what he had kidded me about. And you know that night it was like the Lord took a bucket of cold water and threw it in my face and said, will you wake up? Don't you understand what you're doing? And um, I think that was the thing that really got through to my heart. Um, I mean, it was just unthinkable to me that a man in his personal relationship with God, desiring to get on his knees before God and to worship Him and to praise His name and to be pure from his confession of sin, that somehow some foolishness in my life could be a hindrance to that and could prevent him from having the kind of relationship with God that he wanted to have. And I went away and wept that night and probably for several days after that and God really changed my heart in that area. And I just want to ask you all to, um, some of you maybe that's not a big struggle for you and others of you it is. And I just want to ask you to do some self-examination and talk to the Lord about some things like that and ask him if he needs to to show you some things in your own life in that area. The two or three main passages in the New Testament that talk about women's dress, the one in, in 1 Peter 3, the one in 1 Timothy 2, and to some degree the one in 1 Corinthians 11, the emphasis in all of those passages as they describe women's dress is on modesty. Okay, let's talk a little bit about um, sexual immorality and about what the Bible calls fornication. God designed, as all of us know from Scripture, God designed that kind of a sexual relationship, sexual intercourse for a man and a woman in a marriage relationship where they've made a lifetime commitment to each other. Genesis 2.24 says that God brought the woman to the man and that, uh, that they became one flesh, and that was Adam and Eve, husband and wife. There are many passages in the New Testament, well, in the Old Testament, too, that talk about that kind of a relationship outside of marriage as being sin. Galatians 5 would be one example of that, where it lists the deeds of the flesh, immorality, sensuality, those kinds of things. Really, in dealing with this, there are kind of two different aspects. And one of them would be the fact that God has made it very clear in His Word that that kind of sexual behavior is sin that it's disobedience to him, that it's dishonoring to him, that it's disloyalty to him. And that's the first thing. Any sin against anybody, ourselves or anybody else, is going to be, first of all, and most importantly of all, a sin against God. But there's the other issue, too, of just ourselves and what we do to ourselves in the process. And I thought that in Larry Crabb's book, you remember him, he spoke in chapel a few weeks ago, in his book on the called The Marriage Builder, he has a real interesting chapter on sexuality. <clears throat> and he presents 
some of the problems with this kind of sex in kind of an interesting way that I don't know that I had really thought about before, and I just want to read you a little bit from what he says in here. What has the biological desire for sexual fun? Why, excuse me, why has the biological desire for sexual fun become a slave master, driving people to disregard God's standards? He says even Christians who really should know better try to relieve personal pain with physical pleasure. When we hurt from rejection, emptiness, fear, or loneliness, the temptation to gain relief by pleasantly arousing our physical senses is almost irresistible. We snack on potato chips when we're bored, climb into a hot tub when we're tense, masturbate when we feel alone, something, anything to replace the ache in our hearts with good feelings. No bodily sensation is quite so intensely pleasurable or all-consuming as sexual arousal and release. Women who wrestle with personal insecurities, like feeling there's nobody around who really cares about me, often turn to food, new clothes, or fulfilling jobs to numb the pain of feeling unloved. But there is no better anesthetic for personal pain than sexual intimacy. The bodily pleasure of sexual release convincingly counterfeits, at least for the moment, the personal joy of true security. Sex, he says, provides a physical solution for a personal problem. The evil thing is that it seems to work so well. During those few magic moments of sexual climax, a person experiences a consuming excitement in the body that counterfeits a sense of wholeness in the soul. So Satan does offer fun sex, sex that for a moment helps a woman feel desirable, feminine, wanted, secure. Sex that enables a man to feel attractive, adequate, manly, significant. But Satan cannot offer meaningful relationship built on loving commitment to one another. Fun sex satisfies the body but leaves the real person empty and despairing. It offers pleasure for the body without meaning for the person. So there's first of all what we do to God and how we sin against him. And there's what we do to our own selves in terms of the destruction that comes. And I wish I could say that we don't have a problem with this on our campus, but we do. There's some people who are involved in this kind of immorality who are on this campus right now. You know, and my response to you is not a condemning one, although the sin sin needs to be condemned. But to care about you and about what you're doing to yourself. And to how in years to come you're going to have regrets that you can't even begin to realize right now how deep they're going to be. So that's another area for self-examination in our lives. 1 Corinthians 6.13 says, The body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. And then there are those um, couples who say, well, yeah, we're not involved in sexual immorality or fornication. Because we do a lot of things, but we stop short of intercourse. And so we're fine. We haven't committed any kind of a sin. And the truth of the matter is you're not righteous or without sin because you engage in all of the sexual foreplay leading up to intercourse but manage to stop short of it. 
Let me tell you just briefly what, again, what John White says in his book about this issue. He says, talking about couples like this, the more they pet, the less they talk. And the less they talk, the more they pet. Whenever they are together, they wish they could be alone. When they are alone, their eyes glaze over as they grope past buttons to flesh. Freedom? What kind of an approach to life commitment is that? Though sexuality is designed to facilitate freedom in communication, paradoxically it hinders communication when it is abused. He says, I know that experts used to distinguish light from heavy petting and heavy petting from intercourse. And he's saying you can't make these kinds of technical distinctions. Is it perhaps more righteous to pet with your clothes on? If so, which is worse, to pet with clothes off or to have intercourse with clothes on? What have been termed necking and petting constitute what sexologists call foreplay. Kissing, touching, caressing prepare the bodies of the participants for physical intercourse. They are part of a whole. And what he's saying is that you can't say I'm going to do everything short of that and because I stop at a certain point then I'm without sin. Because he's saying that what you're, what you're tampering with is something that's part of a whole that all goes together and is called sexual intercourse or the sexual involvement that's meant for marriage. That when you become involved in it outside of marriage, it becomes sin. It's interesting, he has a couple of things here to say to engaged couples. How should couples view the time of their engagement? Should they not use it to explore each other's hearts and minds rather than each other's bodies? How clearly have they discussed their marriage goals? How explicit have they been in expressing what each expects of the other in marriage and duties and interests shared and divided? Of finances, of Christian behavior in the home, of the training of children? These are not issues decided by ticking off squares on a computer card. How easily can a couple talk about their deepest emotions, their likes and their dislikes? Okay, let's talk for just a minute about um, another practice that becomes an abuse in this whole area. And that can also bring damage and destruction in a person's life. And that would be the area of masturbation. Um, Technically, for those of you not familiar with the term, a definition would be sexual self-stimulation. It's a topic that is never once mentioned in all of the Bible, which causes some people to say it can't possibly be, it can't be a sin, and there can't be anything wrong with them. But there are plenty of things that we deal today, deal with today in our 20th century world that are never mentioned in the Bible. Um, smoking is not mentioned in the Bible. Um, chewing tobacco is not mentioned in the Bible. Doing cocaine is not mentioned in the Bible. And when you come down to dealing with things that are not ever mentioned there and not any kind of a part of biblical language, how are you going to evaluate those kinds of things? You do it by studying the scriptures and finding out what are the principles that are there, that apply to our lives, that are broad principles that apply to all kinds of different things. And then you start evaluating the practices by those things. And in evaluating something like this, let me just real quickly mention five things that you might think about. And I want to say to you that I, ho- I would wish that none of you struggle with this, but I think statistically there probably are some who do. Um, 
But what I want to encourage you to is please don't just tune me out if, if this is not a problem for you. I hope that all of you are growing in the direction of wanting to be disciples of other women. Remember how we talked about, when we talked about discipleship, that, um, that that's probably in all of the New Testament. If you study, if you go from Matthew to Revelation, the, the only thing that is really concretely mentioned other than a woman and her role in the home with her husband and her children, the main thing that's described there in terms of a ministry that a woman ought to have in terms of her role in the church is discipleship of other women. And I hope that you're planning for a lifetime future of that kind of ministry in one way or another. And, and you may be discipling somebody right now who's not struggling with this issue, and you're not struggling with it. But you may start meeting and discipling with somebody three years from now that when they begin to trust you and realize that you really love them and care about them, they confess to you that they're really struggling in this area. And I hope that right now you're building a file that you're putting things into that maybe don't apply to you right now, but three years or ten years from now, they will. And you're going to need some resource information to be able to help somebody else who's really hurting. So that's one, another reason why I bring it up. Five things we could evaluate it by <clears throat> would be that as the New Testament talks about things like immorality and sensuality is one of the words that's used in Galatians 5. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> it's, it's basically the idea of like an indulgence of an appetite or a preoccupation with the senses. It'd be very hard to study the meaning of words like sensuality in the New Testament and say there's no way that that could apply to a practice like this of sexual self-stimulation. Galatians 5.19 talks about sensuality or listed in the lists of deeds of the flesh there. A second thing in having to do with evaluating it would be the thought patterns and the fantasies that often go with a practice like this. They usually do. <clears throat> and again, Matthew 5.29 talks about that the adultery that's committed in the heart is still sin. A third thing would have to do with the person's conscience. Counselors who meet with people who who have met with hundreds of people who have struggled in this area, so that almost every single person who has ever struggled with this struggles with great guilt as a result of that. And 1 John 3.21 says that we have confidence with God if our conscience is clear. To become enslaved to a practice that causes you to lose your sense of purity of conscience and your confidence with God is going to be a destructive kind of thing in your life. Number four, are you enslaved to it? Are you able to stop the practice? And again, counselors who talk with people who struggle in this area say almost inevitably that's one of the most destructive things about it is that it becomes a habit. And people find it very, very hard to stop. Second Peter 2.19 says, By what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. The fifth thing would be to ask yourself, and there are other principles besides these, but a fifth one would be, does it bring glory to God? 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, do all, everything that we do, do all to the glory of God. I think when you evaluate a practice like this, a habit like this, in the light of the principles of Scripture, it's very hard not to come to the conclusion that it's sin. But particularly for any of you who might struggle with this, and you probably haven't ever shared it with anybody else if you are struggling with it, I would encourage you to study the scriptures about it, to really evaluate some of these principles. Because the truth of the matter is 
that you probably will have no real reason to try to stop that habit unless you come to the personal conviction that it really is sin. I have some sheets. I have some uh, sheets that... um, that have some verses and that are some information about this whole area from a pastor who used to be at Grace Church um, that would be like probably three or four Xeroxed pages. If some of you would like to have that kind of information, why don't you just drop a note, put a note in my box or drop it by the office and I'll get it to you. If I get a note from you, I will not assume that you are entangled or enslaved with this kind of a problem. But I, <clears throat> I will just know that you want the information for whoever, and it may be to put in that file that you're preparing for the future. But I'd like to make it available to you if you, <clears throat> if you would like to have it. To kind of begin to um, finish up our time today, I just want to very briefly um, touch on the area of homosexuality. And again, not because I think that we have a problem here, um, unlike some of the other areas that I know we have problems here. Um, I'm going to ask you, those of you that who don't and would never struggle in this area, don't start thinking about other people and don't start looking, you know, in your mind, looking around at other people. Um, a lot of times people think that both with men and women who um, are homosexuals or who struggle in that area, they think that they can pick those people out. Um, I have, through the years of working on staff at a church, have known a number of women um, who have finally come and sought counseling and have confessed to struggling in this area. And they were people that nobody else in the Christian community around them had any idea that would have been a problem. One of the girls had become a deaconess at Grace Church um, and had to be removed from that position. It's basically what I'd like to say to you is that if any of you would be struggling in an area like that, that I would like to be available to talk with you if you'd like to talk with somebody and try to help, um, you know, work out some things with that. Um, I would not be condemning, you know, there are are Christian colleges where if you went to somebody on staff and confessed that you were really struggling in that area, you would automatically be put out of the school. And that kind of fear might keep you from going to somebody where you could really get some help. And I want you to know that would not be the case here. It would have to do with your own attitude about it and with your repentance in that area. But if some of you are struggling, I would love to try to help you or help you get a counselor who could help you. The main thing I would want to say to you in that area is that um, in terms of homosexuality, there are lots of things that have to do with how that gets started in a person's life that go way back to some beginnings and probably some ways about how they were brought up and and home life and things like that that eventually culminate in actual choices that they make. But even as it begins to move in that direction, it does not begin with a physical sexual act. It begins with a relationship. And the question to ask is what character, if if you're wanting to know if you're having a problem in that area, what characterizes that kind of a relationship? And basically what counselors will tell you is that what characterizes that kind of a relationship is an unhealthy dependence on another woman. An unhealthy dependence on another woman. And that's how it gets started and begin to move in that direction. Now don't get paranoid about your friendships, okay? Because you're, you're, you're at an age where you, you need to be developing good, healthy relationships 
with other women. And God designed it to be that way. And there's a problem for the girl who can't relate to anybody but guys and has a real difficult time even making a friendship with another girl. That's another whole area of difficulties. So don't let what I'm saying drive you away from good, solid friendships. But if you know that you're really struggling in that area, what I would encourage you is to go to somebody, preferably somebody older, that you could trust, that you feel like could help you talk through some things like that and help you deal with it. Because it is an area of abuse that is incredibly enslaving. The girls that I have known who have gotten into that, it becomes just an amazingly difficult thing for them to ever get out of. And if you begin to catch some of your concerns at a very early stage, when it hasn't become a physical thing, it's much easier to deal with it at that point. I want to close by asking you to bow your heads and do some self-examination in your own life about all of these different areas. And for a lot of you, there are probably some of the areas that, that you're not struggling in right now. But probably all of us can take a look at our thought life and find some things to deal with there, even if we don't find things in other areas. I hope that I've not offended any of you today by the things that I've talked about or how I've discussed them. They're very sensitive issues, and it's not my desire to hurt or to offend anybody. But I think, too, as as Christians, that we need to be able to have an honesty with each other, and I don't think it's helpful to people who are hurting and struggling in secret to be surrounded by Christians in leadership who refuse to be able to talk about those kinds of things. So my desire in talking about it has hopefully to is to encourage you and to be of help to you. Also, in asking you to do self-examination, I want to say a word to the um, to the girls that some of these things I've talked about today have been a part of your past. And you have repented and you've turned your back on those things. And God is establishing a totally different kind of life for you. And it would grieve me greatly if you went away from here today depressed about your past. God would not have that be the case. God has forgiven you. He's doing a healing work in your life. And you need to accept and receive that forgiveness and walk daily in the experience of that forgiveness. And you should go forth from here today with great joy that God loves you and that he forgives. And that he can, though you will live with some of the consequences or the memories, maybe for the rest of your life, that God still does a healing in your life. And I would want you to leave here today with joy for that forgiveness and that fresh start that he's given you. Let me read you three verses, and I just want to ask you to meditate on them. And I'll give you a couple of minutes then just to talk to the Lord all by yourself. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body.